Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. So not all CPAs are created equal. And most CPAs really just do your tax returns. They don't really understand real estate, don't really understand real estate tax strategies in general. And for many years, I have left tens of thousands of dollars on the table. And we're going to change that today because we're talking with Tom Costelli about real estate law. And not only is what's cool about him, he's not only a CPA and tax strategy, but he's also a syndicator as well. So it's really, really cool. We're going to talk about that in just a second. I want a quick shout out here to C. Verbulk. He left us a, a review on Amazon. He says, Michael's a genius. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Mr. Berg. Not only at multifamily real estate investment, but also at communicating all of his wisdom and insight into an easy to understand manner. I felt like he was sitting right in front of me during the whole read. Awesome. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. If you guys like the yellow book on, on Amazon, check it out. Leave me a review there as well. I want to do a shout out to first dealmaker, Josh Will. He closed 112 unit in Evansville, Indiana for $5.8 million. He was one a mentor of us working with Jeremy Lemire. So congrats, Josh, on that. If you are interested in mentoring and working one-on-one with a full-time syndicator, such as Jeremy Lemire, owns thousands of units, has a property management company, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Just schedule a call and have a conversation to see if mentoring is right for you. Really excited about what we're doing there with our students and our students are doing deals. They've been doing deals for since we've been doing it in up and down markets and if that's interesting for you, check that out. With that, let's bring on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on? What's going on, Michael? Yeah, so I got a nice topic for you, Garrett. Right? So Because we're, you know, we're trying to buy, we're trying to sell. And, and the question I have for you that you're not going to feel strongly about is, when is it okay, Garrett, to retrade? Yeah, so this is a really good topic because you're seeing all kinds of silly stuff going on right now. Interest rates are rising. So prices are, are shifting downward in a lot of senses. And so what's happening is you're getting a deal, putting it under contract, either on the buy or sell side, and then pricing isn't necessarily where it was when you started. Okay. Well, I take the position where I've never, so I've never actually retraded a deal once it's gone under contract. I put up earnest money and agreed on a price. And so when is it, when is it okay? In my mind, it's never okay because you agreed to that. <clears throat> you're trying to hold this for the long term. So, or, or more, more often than not. Now, some people want to get testy with it and they think they can, you know, if you're selling a deal to them, they want to try to retrade you because the market's shifted and it's changed and this and that. But at that point, it's really just about the position of the seller. If the property is worth less, yeah, okay, great. So what? Maybe I want to hold this long term now and, and not sell it at this at this exact time. It's really at that point, it's in my mind. If a retrade happens, it's kind of a reputational risk. If someone's doing it to me, I feel poorly because they signed it up. They put money on a price that is sitting on a contract. You agreed at the price. And now you're going back on your on your word. And I think that's BS. You know, all the things were set up on the sell side for you to, you know, you have to exit. There's people that need to get paid a certain amount or whatever it is. 
I think a retrade, even in this market, is unacceptable. And it really bothers me that that it's happening in different forms, including to us at this time. And, and it's not something that I value the opposite of that. So for me, it's it's kind of an inexcusable thing. You know, when is it okay to retrade? Probably if there was something that the seller was hiding from you, like a bunch of down units that they didn't come out with and say, hey, this is there and it's a really expensive situation. I'd say that's about the only time that it's it's acceptable to retrade, in my opinion. And it, it feels like it's more acceptable over the last three months than ever before. And like you said before, it was a giant no-no because of the reputation. And brokers didn't want to work with buyers who would retrade because they're non-committal. They want buyers who will follow through and close. And so retrading is a form of not closing, basically wasting everybody's time. It's like, you know, you get a contractor, you know, and you get a bunch of bids and then, you know, low bid gets it. And then they change order your death and be and, and it's never ending. That's kind of what a retrade is like. And those are awful. Having gone through them, they're awful. And afterwards, no one actually wants to do business with you anymore. And now, for some reason, it's becoming more acceptable. And I'm with you. I don't think it's acceptable as lo- as either, unless there's something material that could not have been known beforehand. And like rising interest rates to me is a known. It's not like a big surprise. Oh, oh, we'll see. I wonder, oh my gosh, interest rates went up. Well, I didn't see that coming. Right. And so in my mind, it's even, it's even unacceptable in this environment. I mean, the only exception to me really would be, and there was a a blip for a period of time where LTV from lenders really collapsed or right after COVID, if you remember the bridge lending went away and that was so severe that it couldn't even retrade. Deals simply just died on the vine because no one could retrade at any price. So maybe there's a spectrum in there. Maybe, maybe, but I'm with you, man. I'm with you, especially that retrading. So my advice, I'm with Garrett on this. Try not to retrade because it will ruin your reputation. And also one more thing. Think about this. If you go to buy a deal and you put it under contract for half the value that, it, that it's really worth, and it's just, it's just, you got it's a really amazing deal as a buyer. Well, the seller can't retrade you the other way. They can't say, now I want 100 a door instead of 50 because it's worth 100. Legally, they can't do that. They'll be sued. It's not acceptable legally to go in the other direction. Why should it be acceptable going backwards when you only have a 60-day window to close? I mean, it's, it's a big no-no in my book. And you know, it's just something that really irks me. Yeah. It's super irritating when you're the seller and it will ruin your reputation if you're the one doing it as well. So be very cautious, very, very cautious of that. So let's get into the interview here with Tom Costelli. He's really cool. He started as an entrepreneur really early on, but like so many people are basically forced to go to college route, get a good job. And that's kind of what he did, but he felt a conflict between the two. And he now really found a solution where he's able to provide tax law strategy to real estate investors. And it's really cool, his perspective, because he's both a passive investor, an active investor, and a CPA. So really excited about this interview. Let's get right into it with Tom Costelli. Tom, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here today. So you read this book called The Richest Man in Babylon, which, which I, I read recently, actually. It's one of those ones you should probably read early on, which is what you did. In fact, you named your investing company Babylon Property Group, which is interesting. So it must have made an impression on you. Why? Well, you know, that was the first, that was one of the first books I actually read as like an adult, like, you know, I don't have to be forced to read anymore. And, you know, it really kind of set up the foundation of my, I guess, my personal finance journey and how to kind of, you know, pay yourself first and invest, you know, invest in things that you understand or invest with people that you understand. 
So it kind of laid that foundation for me. I also grew up in a town called West Babylon on Long Island. So it kind of clicked for me. I'm like, you know what? This is going to be the name I'm going to pick partially because of the book and partially because of the town I grew up in. And that's kind of how the name came about. But that book was monumental in, in my journey. And you know, the Rich Dad Poor Dad came next and the rest is history. What was it about that, about that book that it stood out for you? The Richest Man in Babylon? Babylon. It was really yeah, yeah. just the way it was told and just how timeless those principles were. And that's kind of overall what stood out. And the kind of the pay yourself first, make sure you keep, I think it was keep, keep more of thy gold, if I'm not mistaken. That was a big piece. And that really helped me accumulate enough money to ultimately start investing in real estate. So I think that that alone, but also one of the other pillars or one of his other lessons that, that was in there was invest with people who know what they're doing in that specific area, right? So I wouldn't necessarily go invest in real estate with someone who's all their experiences in oil and gas per se, right? I want you know, gonna invest with people who have experience doing real estate if that's what I'm gonna invest in. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's a it's a great book. Now, were you an entrepreneur from an early age or how did that come about? Yeah. So I've always been an entrepreneurial type. You know, I've I've been telling my parents since I was five years old that I was going to be in business. And kind of growing up throughout the years, I would always find ways to make money. Right. I would I would go door to door doing car washes, mowing lawns. I did garage sales. I, I used to make CDs and stuff for people back in the day when that was a thing. So I used to do pretty much whatever I could to, to make money. And then kind of as I got into my teens, I really wanted to be a full-time entrepreneur, but I got stuck in that, that cycle of, I'll go to college and, and get a degree and, and get that nine to five. And like kind of everybody around me was telling me to do that. So that's ultimately what I did. But then when I was in college, I kind of realized, okay, this is not going to get me to where I want to go. Like I always had this fundamental understanding of like, how is studying this book here going to make me money? Like I knew that studying this book was not going to make me money. What was going to make me money is actually going out and doing things. And that's how I kind of got started in real estate. I went to a three-day weekend that was focused all on real estate syndication, fell in love with that strategy, started investing as a limited partner, and ultimately was able to get in an 82 in an apartment complex as a general partner in a deal back in 2017, which has since came full cycle. But that was exciting. That's pretty awesome. Now, you, you, but you finished your college training because you actually became a CPA and you went out and started practicing. How did that come about? And, and what was the conflict between that, which is a you know, school and career and this entrepreneur? Like, What was the conflict between the two and how did you resolve that? Yeah. So you know, the conflict was, it was, it was about lifestyle, right? Partially about lifestyle, partially about money. So lifestyle wise, if you know you go to a school for accounting, like when I came out of school for accounting, I, I got a job at, at, a, at a national accounting firm. I was in their general assurance department. So I was doing audits effectively. And you know, I looked across the table of the people who were 10 years ahead of me. And I was like, this is just not where I want to be. You know, I, you know, people would stay in the audit room until one o'clock in the morning because they didn't want to go home to their their spouse. And, you know, they were just, you know, you're it was a constant like 80, 90 hours a week. And it wasn't even like it was getting you to where you wanted to go. So I was like, this is there's just a fundamental mismatch there in the lifestyle of it. And also from an earnings standpoint, you know, at the end of the day, you're trading your time for dollars there. And in fact, it's even worse than trading your time for dollars because you're salaried in. Like, so a, no matter how much time you work, you're still getting paid the same amount effectively. So all that just didn't really make sense to me. And I saw that being an entrepreneur, getting into business, you have a lot more opportunity to grow your income as well as have the freedom that you want, the autonomy that you want. And that's kind of where that divide was. So 
after I did my first year at that accounting firm, I was like, okay, this is not for me. And I immediately started looking for ways I can get involved in real estate and, and find more entrepreneurial things to do, which kind of long story short, I found this firm that I work at now, Hall CPA, also known as the real estate CPA. And it's really an entrepreneurial type of firm. So I was able to really express that entrepreneurial side of me, help build a lot of things out, lay the foundation, get involved in things like sales and marketing, and really have that autonomy that I was looking for. That's kind of where I kind of found that fit was because of the entrepreneurialist of the firm. If it was just a normal accounting firm, I don't think I would have would have been able to to deal with it for for too long. So this is a really good point to everybody listening. I mean, this is a similar process that I went through as well in my in the industry that I was in out of college, which was actually much different. It was it was nightlife, but I looked at what is like the pinnacle of this industry. Okay, the pinnacle of, of the nightlife industry is I own a club. What does my life look like if I own a nightclub? Well, I'm probably not married. I'm probably chasing around younger women and I'm probably miserable and I'm probably drinking too much. And so there's always caveats to that. But but if you look at kind of like how many people, like just any firm that you're in currently working for, what's the top of that look like? How long is it going to take you to get to that if you really want to, or even if you make lateral moves, is that the life you want to live? And once like I realized that same thing as I was in that industry and I'm like, you know, I'm, this is just not going to work out well. And so I think if anyone that's listening, if you're working in nine to five and you kind of look at that, that's, that's really motivational to think about. You're like, Hey, if I'm on this path and I stay here, where am I going to end up? And I was able to make the, the pivot early on after kind of that was, that ended up being like this big driver for me. And then it's just about gathering the resources to be able to go and move into to what makes more sense for your life. There's risks when it comes to entrepreneurship, big risks. And some people can't overcome that. But but if you don't do that, you could end up like the other guy. Right. So I, I'm curious, you know, Tom, when you're getting into this, sounds like you made, you know, a, a, a next move into like a more of an entrepreneurial CPA firm. How did that set you up for the next phase your life for the next chapter of your life in entrepreneurship? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So when I got to this firm where I think around $200,000 in revenue, so there wasn't really much built out, you know, we're flying by the seat of our pants in the beginning, right? It was, there wasn't much of a foundation. So really what it, what that allowed me to do was get into a role where I had to build, right? I had to build, I had to go and hustle. I had to go in and get contacts, meet people, do sales, do marketing. It was very much like building your own business in a sense. And at the time I came in, I think as an associate and I worked my way up to partner. So that really gives at the partner level, it really gives you the autonomy to do a lot more things. Like now we're looking at business acquisitions and 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 building teams and you know, what's the next thing? What what marketing channels can we add to the firm to to attract more clients? How can we retain more clients? It's very much more high level rather than me sitting at a desk saying, you know what? I'm going to be filing these tax returns all day, every day, or I'm going to be, you know, sitting at the audit table doing audits all day, every day. And that's very restrictive, but on being able to build and make things happen, I guess that's the word, you know, being, being able to influence and have over the decision-making and the direction of the firm is really empowering versus just, you know, kind of being a cog in in an existing wheel. And that's what a lot of, you know, older firms are. 
Now, I mean, so you're you're a bit of a hybrid. You're the entrepreneur startup guy, but yet you're in a field where you have the potential to be a high income earner as well, and therefore you've made some investments. Right. And other people that are listening and watching this may have some investments in the stock market and mutual funds and things of that nature. You have decided to invest in real estate. Yeah. Talk about why you chose that because there are other uh, other options out there, and you know, and you must have looked at those options and, and said, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this." Why? What options did you choose to invest in, and why did you pick those? Right, right. So I started investing in multifamily, and that that's really because it it really just made sense to me from from on so many levels, from a philosophical level, if you will, like real estate. There's a lot of technology disrupting the entire world right now. Things are coming and going. They're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But the reality of the situation is people always need space to live, space to work, whether that's at home or somewhere else. They need space. And until you know, we have Honey, I Shrunk the Kids technology, you know, real estate, in my opinion, is not going anywhere. So it's going to be here today. It's going to be here you know, way after I'm gone. So I like the longevity aspect of it. I also like the multiple profit centers, right? So you have appreciation. It generally appreciates over time. You can also also a multifamily force appreciation through value add and increasing the NOI. So that was always very attractive. You know, then you have the tax benefits of it. So one of the best parts about real estate is you can effectively get your rental income tax free because of the expense called depreciation. So you could, you know, in other words, you can have a tax loss on paper for tax purposes, but despite the fact that you're actually generating, you know, positive cash flow. So that was always attractive. And there's you know principal pay down then in multifamily specifically of economies of scale instead of having to go buy you know ten single family houses you can just buy one apartment complex in one transaction that's a little bit more complicated than buying a single family house you know for sure but all that stuff that's what attracted me to real estate and also the stability of it for the most part the stock market it's very easy you know to put your money in the stock market and it goes down and you could watch that every day and it can give you like you know a lot of anxiety so. Basically, after 2008, I graduated high school. I'm going to date myself a little bit here, I guess, but I graduated high school in 2009, so I'm not that old. But the point is, like, I grew, I, I kind of came out of high school during that economic downturn, and everybody's so fearful of the stock market that that kind of got into me too. So I was like, you know what, real estate's on the up and up right now. It's on the upward trend. All the profit centers I just mentioned. That's kind of why I got into it. Let's talk about taxes since you know you know a little bit about about the subject. How is it possible that you can make an investment? Let's say you invest a hundred thousand dollars and you you know you get cash flow distributions, you get six seven thousand dollars in a year, and you're showing a taxable loss, right? And the poor investor takes the K one to his CPA, and the CPA goes, "Oh, oh, so so sorry, Tommy, that you know you're such a bad investor." And you're like, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you. It's something that's so unusual. Explain to me at the high, really high level, how taxation of real estate works. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to understand is when you buy a property, you don't get to expense it the first year, right? So every single year, a portion of the property's building value. So land is never depreciated. I'm going to get into depreciation in a second, but land is not depreciated, but your building's value will be depreciated. Basically, you're going to have a depreciation expense each year, a little bit each year. And there's ways to accelerate that and increase that but that expense is only on paper. That's not an expense that actually, it's not money that actually leaves your pocket. So that expense, because it's so large, because real estate's so capital intensive and you're buying these large properties, that expense is quite high in many cases and it's able to shelter your rental income. So to kind of give an example, just say you had $100,000 in rental income, right? And then you have $60,000 of hard expenses. And what I mean by hard expenses, I'm talking about utilities, repairs and maintenance, 
legal fees. Maybe you're maybe you're paying a leasing agent to to rent it out. Property management fees. All of these fees. This is money that actually leaves your pocket at the end of the day. It goes to somebody else. So if you took this example, hundred thousand dollars in revenue, sixty thousand dollars in hard expenses, you'd be left with about forty thousand dollars left of income, right, or cash flow. Now, in many other businesses, that's it. You know, you just pay tax on that forty thousand dollars, and you know, you call it a day. But because the depreciation expense in real estate is so high, let's just say that you had fifty thousand dollars of depreciation, and and the reality is it could be much much higher than that. But let's say you had fifty thousand dollars for the sake of this example. Well, now on paper you have your revenue of one hundred thousand, you have your expenses of sixty thousand, then you have this depreciation expense of fifty thousand. Now you're at a loss of ten thousand dollars, and this loss is only on paper. Because remember, this depreciation expense doesn't really exist. It's called a non-cash expense or a phantom expense. Because now when you go report your tax returns, you're reporting this loss on your tax returns, but yet you just pocketed $40,000 in this example of cash flow. So you didn't have to pay tax on your cash flow. And that's just scraping the iceberg or, or the tip of the iceberg in terms of tax strategies is your ability to not have to pay tax on the cash flow. If you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications, then check out our investment firm, Nighthawk Equity, at nighthawkequity.com. You can learn more about us, our team, our track record, and investment process, and you can schedule a call with us as well. Just click the Join button. You can fill out a short form to join our investment club, and then you can schedule a call with us. We'd love to have a conversation with you and share some of our upcoming opportunities. Again, that's nighthawkequity.com. Talk to you soon. So one of the big things that that happens, you you get into this, you get this bonus depreciation, and obviously everyone can use it, but it, but it, not everyone can take the full benefit of it. Maybe explain a little bit about who can take the full benefit of it and and how it works with the different levels of people, and then also what happens on when it comes to recapture when when we do sell a property. All right, absolutely. So I'll, I'll break it down first for the people who can use it, right? So first thing to understand here is to lay the foundation of this, that section 469 of the tax code, which was put into place in the Tax Reform Act of 1986, made all rental activities passive by default. And what that meant is that, and there's two buckets of income, basically. There's passive income and non-passive income. If you have a, a job or you have an active business you're involved in, your income is generally going to be in the non-passive bucket. Then if you have a business that you don't that you're not active in or you have real estate, it's going to be in the passive bucket. So these rules state that passive losses can only offset passive income. So in other words, the passive losses from real estate can generally not offset your active income or your non-passive income. And that's where most people fall into the bucket. Now there's something called the real estate professional status. And the real estate professional status was put into place in like 1994 after pretty much over the that eight-year period. There's a lot of lobbying by the real estate industry to get this put in place. And what it does is if you work more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time, and that's the key, more than half your total working time, that's what trips a lot of people up, in a real property trader business, then you can effectively take the losses from your rental properties against your active or your non-passive income and use it to offset and basically help reduce your taxes. So let's say, for example, let's just say you made $100,000 of income that was non-passive, right? And you're able to qualify as a real estate professional or your spouse was able to qualify as a real estate professional. And you had this $10,000 of losses that I was talking about before from this rental property. Well, now this $10,000 of losses are going to be able to offset that $100,000 of income you have, and you're only going to pay tax on $90,000 of that. So if you were just 
I'm pulling a number out of a hat here. If you're in the 22% tax bracket, and we could always add zeros to this and increase this, but just for example, if you're in the 22% tax bracket, this $10,000 loss is going to be worth $2,200 for you. Now, in many cases, these numbers are amplified. I'm just giving an example. I see, for example, many of our many of real estate investors are often saving ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars using this strategy. But that's just an example of how it works there. Now, if you're not a real estate professional, which is the majority of investors in my experience, then what happens is these losses cannot offset your active income, and instead, they will only offset your other passive income. So maybe you own other properties that have passive income. They can offset those the income from those properties or the gain on sale of a passive activity. So when you sell a property or if you're invested in like a syndicate and that property is sold, you can use these passive losses to offset the gain on sale. And that in and of itself is a big perk in, in real estate. So a lot of, in my experience, a lot of investors really get you know bummed out when they get to hear that, oh, you know, I can't take this against my 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 non-passive income. But then they start to realize over time, oh, look, you can offset your, your cash flow from it again, your rental income, and then also the gain on sale when you ultimately sell property can help help shelter. And those are that's really the benefit for those folks. I got one thing on this that I think there's sometimes there's this like gray area or people are in these industries and they're not sure. Hey, would I qualify for real estate professional status? So I'm going to call out a few of these, mm-hmm. and I want you to tell me if they if they technically would qualify, or if there's there's a version that could qualify or not. Because I think there's, and and maybe I don't even know the answer to some of these. I'm not in these industries, but like say for example, a mortgage broker, would that person qualify for real estate professional status? No, that person would not qualify because uh, that's because they're they're believed to be in the financing business, and there's a few tax court cases on that. Around that to confirm that. So, you know, I'm 100% confident that a mortgage broker, as fair as, as unfair as it may seem, does, does not qualify as a real estate professional. What about a real estate tax advisor? Um, unfortunately, not. So, <laughs> we would be considered to be in the in the accounting in the accounting industry. Ah, so but a real estate commercial real estate broker or residential broker. Yes, yes, and because there's there's 11 real property trades or businesses, and one of them is brokerage. And if you're an agent or you're a broker, then then that then that would be considered a real property trade business for these purposes. Oh, that's that's really good to know. So you have these these these, these taxable losses while you're holding a piece of real estate, and then typically they will carry forward until such time where you actually sell something. Now, typically when you sell, you have this giant capital gain, right? And at one point you got to pay the piper, right? Or right. or maybe. Or maybe you don't. What are some tax and 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 what you said is that these these care forward losses can be applied towards passive gains, such as when you sell them, and so you kind of con- you're able to consume those. But what are some other tax strategies that you see where if if you do make an investment in a multifamily or commercial real estate, and four years later it sells for a massive you know capital gain, what are some options that can investors can consider to possibly not pay taxes or defer taxes? Right. So to defer taxes. So so the first thing is it depends on your level of control over the deal. If you have control over the deal or you're on the management team and you want to go ahead and do a 1031 exchange, you can go ahead and do a 1031 exchange and basically take the sales proceeds and buy another property, usually a larger property or multiple properties, and you're able to defer the tax, continue to keep, you know, accumulating more real estate and and continue building your wealth. So the 1031 exchange 
very classic. That's the first, you know, that's what that's one of the main options people consider. Now, the second option, this has been really popular over the last few years, thanks to bonus depreciation. And that is set property is going to be sold, and you know, three years is, is going to be sold. Well, you can look at this form on your tax return. It's called form 8582. And that's where your passive activity losses or your suspended losses that have accumulated are stored or, or just, you know, just reported right every year. And if you look at that and you say, okay, well, I, I'm estimating this gain to be, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, and I have hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of losses on my on my form eighty five eighty two. Well, you don't need to do anything in that case. You just let it offset, and you're good to go. It'll just automatically offset it. Now, if you don't have enough passive losses, you have a few options. You can go and invest in a property directly. So maybe you go out and buy your own property, have a cost segregation study run on it, and then you can use bonus depreciation or just depreciation in general to offset it. And I'll get into a little bit more about the bonus depreciation in just one second, because there's something that people need to be aware of around that. But that's one way to do it. Or you can go and invest in a syndicate. So you can go and invest in a syndicate. And if assuming they're going to do the, the sponsor's going to do a cost segregation study on it, you can use the losses from the syndicate to offset the gain on the sale. Now, that the key to this strategy is that the new property has to be bought in the same calendar year a same tax year, which is the calendar year for most taxpayers as the property is being sold. So that's why syndicates are so popular for this. I've actually did this last year. I was invested in a syndicate. It sold. And then I invested in another syndicate before the year end. I got the passive loss passed through. And now I'm not going to pay tax at the federal level, which is very nice. So that's one one way to go about it. Now, something to note, note about bonus depreciation, it is starting to phase out. So 2022 will be the last year you're going to be eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. And in 2023, it goes down to 80%, which is still going to be quite powerful. We've we've run the numbers on it, still packs a very powerful punch. And 2024 goes down to 60, still pretty good. And then 2025 goes down to 40%, and 2026 goes down to 20%, and 2027 under current law, it's gone. So something that a lot of people have been doing right now this year, and I'm sure they're going to continue doing it next year, is making their investments now. And the reason why they're doing it now, we're going to be planning to do it next year, is so they can lock in that bonus depreciation at those high rates so that when they're syndicates or when they sell properties two, three, four years from now, they're going to have all these suspended passive losses. Which leads me to the idea of tax planning. And I, I underappreciated this for years, right? Because my MO has been, well, you take all your, your stuff and you give them to the CPA and the CPA files the taxes. Now, I've since learned that you actually need some tax strategy, some tax planning. And you just mentioned some of those things. But why is it important for a real estate investor to actually start thinking about tax planning and maybe actually works with a tax strategy person and possibly in addition to their CPA? Yeah, absolutely. And that that that's because when you're when you're doing your tax returns, when you're going to your CPA and you're handing them all that information, they're just reporting it, they're just reporting the activities that happened last year on a, it's basically a report card, right? They just report it. Whatever happened last year gets reported to the to IRS and you file your taxes and the chips have already fallen, if you will. Whatever happened last year happened. So really w- the importance of tax strategy is having a plan of things and actions and strategies that you're going to implement throughout the year or throughout the years. Sometimes you have to do this stuff years in advance. And so that when your tax return finally gets filed, you're, you're getting better results, right? Because it's really like I like like I kind of just said a little bit. It's it's the actions you take, the strategy you implement throughout the year that are actually going to implement that. It's going to be actually going to influence your tax return. And usually, once the year ends, once twelve thirty one, 
comes around, there's there's things you you can't. There's a lot of things that you're not going to be able to do anymore. So it's important that you you be proactive, especially with real estate where there are potentials that you're going to you know, potential that you're going to pay massive capital gains tax. But there's also potential for a lot of tax savings and a lot of strategies you can implement. So you want to meet with a CPA or a tax advisor to go through that on the onset whenever you're buying a property or whenever you're you're making a fundamental shift in your investment strategy, really just to make sure that you're taking advantage of everything that's uh, available to you and you're taking the right actions throughout the year or throughout the years. So then again, once that tax return gets filed, you're, you're taking the best advantage to it. Because again, it's just a report card and you have to take those actions beforehand to influence it. All CPAs are not the same. You know, I had a CPA prior to, so I had this phase where I was doing much more crypto and stock investing than, than real estate. And I had a CPA that was specialized in that. I didn't change CPAs fast enough when I got back into the industry. And it came back to bite me because they didn't have the right setup. Like I should have been running things through an S corp. I wasn't. So I ended up paying extra self-employment tax. There were just things that they didn't quite understand about the real estate professional status. So a lot of you sitting at home should run an audit. If you if you are thinking about getting into real estate or you're already in it, you got to have someone that's versed in that that version of the tax code and understands how it all flows together and how it all works, or else you're really at a disadvantage and you might not be maximizing your full potential with real estate. And, and I think a lot of people like investors, LPs, especially they'll come and they'll, be like, they'll come to us and be like, Oh, Hey, do you have any recommendations? Because I don't think my CP is handling this correctly. And you'll be surprised. It can be night and day different between what they're telling you and what somebody that's actually up, up to speed on how multifamily works will tell you. Yeah, I mean, um, give give Tom a call. You know, Tom, how can I, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do that would be by heading over to to our website, therealestatecpa.com. If you go to therealestatecpa.com slash multifamily or forward slash multifamily, I guess people would say you we have a guide for tax strategies that your real estate that your excuse me that your CPA is not telling you about. So you could check that out and, and learn a little bit more. We always work with clients on tax planning as well as tax preparation. So we kind of we kind of do we kind of do everything, which is great. But yeah, that's the best way to do it. We also have a Facebook group, Tax Smart Investors. You just find us on Facebook. But those are the best ways to get in contact with me. Hey, it's been great uh, hanging out with you, Tom. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on tax code. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. I remember a few years ago, I I actually signed up with a tax strategist. I just sensed there was such a gap in what other people more sophisticated people were doing with their taxes compared to mine, you know, file the, take the K-1s and file it and someone does a tax return. I always felt it was very reactive. And I saw other people being much more proactive and they would have these dialogues with their CPAs about what they should do. And then they had a thing that they did all year long. So I was like, on it, I'm going to hire a tax strategist too. And I paid like 20 grand. I was like, that is ridiculous. I did it anyway because you know, they had a great reputation and I really wanted to try it. Well, this guy, so so these tax strategists, they work with your existing CPA. If you love your existing CPA, they'll work with them. But what I found interesting is that I saved like $100,000 in taxes year one. And that that tax planning had residual through, through obviously remainder of years. So it's an example where, you know, you, I have a limiting belief or even a false belief about investing in the tax strategies. But to me, even this conversation with Tom today is if you're in real estate, you are in one of the, the most tax advantages businesses of the world, why not take full advantage of it?
so you got to think about this. What is, why do they set tax rules the way that they do in the tax code? And it's because they want to put the economy, they want to basically incentivize the economy to move in the way that they want it to move. The government does. So you and I, like normal citizens out there are not going to know how to navigate those rules because we didn't write the code. It's very difficult. It's very complicated. And so there are people out there that, that are, they spend their life learning this code and how to interpret it and how it, it works in your favor. And so if you're paying to tap into that, or you, you, you utilize somebody, and even if it costs a bit more, like you said, Michael, a tax strategist, taxes are the biggest expense you're ever going to have. It's number one. There's nothing else that's going to cost you more. So why would you not invest into that in some degree to be able to reduce that cost? I don't think people think about that enough. No, tax strategy yeah, is- I know, it's 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 the biggest thing. I mean, if you're a high income earner, you are painfully aware of the taxes you pay. Like literally, government is like is like your biggest partner in whatever you're doing. It's so irritating, and so you have to pay attention to this stuff. I mean, even having your wife get a real estate or your spouse getting real estate professional real estate status, you know, it might super be worth it. Even if it's not, the carry forward losses are just magical, especially when you when you have an exit, okay, and your capital gains are completely offset by your carry forward losses. It is unbelievable. So one of the best ways it takes advantage of this stuff is, of course, when you're making investments, you invest in the stock market or, or crypto, God forbid, why not put it in real estate? And if you have not done that yet, or you have some and you've got a toe in it, why not go a little bigger with real estate? Because the advantages are so amazing. Because number one, like Tom said, it's much less volatile. It's not going to keep you up at night, you watching the ticker every single day, and you're happy when it's up and you're basically depressed when it's down, less volatility. Number two, the returns are actually much higher than the stock market, especially over time. Number three, you get cash flow from your investments, which you don't get from the stock market, which means that you invest enough, you literally have enough cash flow to exit whatever you're doing. And number four are these tax advantages. So if you're interested in that, have a conversation with our investment firm. It's called Nighthawk Equity. And just go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button and schedule a call with us and have a conversation about it's one of our upcoming opportunities. So the point is this, guys, pay attention to your taxes. But if you're an active investor or a passive investor or you're a stock investor, you've got to pay attention to your taxes. I'm going to tell you that the average CPA, probably the one you're working with right now, is not being proactive and they're not taking advantage of all that the tax code allows you to do. So pay attention and go shopping for great tax strategies. Tom is one of them. And put that person on your team and work with them to basically pay less taxes. So hope you guys are inspired by that. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.